Welcome to 100 PM, episode 31. You're listening to 100 PM, the show where we're interviewing 100 expert product people from startups to enterprise and everything in between to bring you all the actionable advice you need to succeed in product management. Today, I'm talking to Justin Hughes, VP of Product Development and Design at Trunk Club. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com, the web's fastest growing resource for product management topics, recommended resources, and online learning. I'm Susanna Bate, product coach, startup mentor, and host of today's show. Let's dive right in and say hello to Justin Hughes. Hi, I'm Justin Hughes, and I'm the Vice President of Product and Design here at Trunk Club. And we're in Chicago. We're in Chicago. Have you always been in Chicago, by the way? I was born and raised here on the south side of Chicago. You were. Okay. And, you know, full disclosure to the audience, we are in the heart of the heart, I think. We are. We're just in, uh, we're in River North, north of Loop here, right next to the L. So if you hear trains and sirens, those are the sounds of Chicago, and we're incorporating them for authenticity. Right. I, as a matter of fact, I go out to the country and I can't sleep without those sounds. So. <laughs> Definitely authentic Chicago. I want to kick off, Justin, by talking a little bit about your path into product management because uh, something caught my eye in your profile, and that is you studied product design and development in school. A lot of the folks that we talk to on the show, you know, they end up applying the product manager label sort of retroactively and say, oh, that's what I've been doing for the past 10 years. I just didn't know it. There seems like there was a little more intention for you. You talk about that for yeah, us. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think don't let the uh, the degree fool you. I, I started off in the same spot. Maybe a part of me always knew that I wanted to be a product manager. I think when I was a kid, I used to keep journals of uh, cool ideas I had and, and things I wanted to invent. Um, I used to do things like tape together, like hammers and screwdrivers, and say like, "Look at this new product I made." <laughs> um, I don't think I knew the path to get to doing that kind of cool job. Um, so I went to college and I studied mechanical engineering because I thought that was actually the path that you went down to, to become a, a product developer or designer and quickly found out that wasn't the case. And I, I ran out of money actually at that point in college and didn't know what to do. And I, I had a minor in English literature, which was a, a, a saving grace at the end of the day. But I just went and I, I cracked out my English literature degree and I, I got a, a job in a call center. Where all English literature degrees go <laughs> to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because there's, there's really no other place. And I was like, what am I going to do with my English literature degree? Like, I don't know how to get a job. And I didn't really want to teach. So I, I uh, you know, working in this call center, I started to make proposals. It's like, I would, I would do this a little bit differently, or I would set this up a little bit differently to try to be a little more efficient. And eventually I realized there's this job called product management at the company and um, started shadowing some of the product managers. And like, this is really awesome. I was really fortunate to start off in a place at uh, cars.com that had a rather large product management department, about 80 people or so. So I got to start off being an apprentice there and actually working through um, doing analytical work and breaking down market sizing and doing some light wireframing and that kind of stuff. And um, after I'd been there for a few years doing that job uh, as an apprentice product manager, I got a job up here in River North uh, working for an ad tech company. and quickly found myself on my own without any real structure or, you know, what we defined as the product management process at, uh, as at cars.com. 
and uh, was really kind of seeking some legitimacy. I'm like, wow, I feel like I don't know anything now and it's crazy and I'm constantly questioning every decision I make, which at the time I didn't realize was just product management. <laughs> and so I uh, was looking around and was really lucky to find that Northwestern here in Chicago has a um, product management program that's geared towards professionals. And so what was really awesome about the program is it wasn't really academic. Uh, they were really smart to bring in lots of product managers from across the industry. So I got to study under the guy who invented Tide at P&G, right? Wow. Really, really, really smart people. That's the original, brand management was the original product management. Brand management was the original product management. Wow. And uh, he was phenomenal. Actually, his course was in how to create a crisis in your organization. Uh, and so it was, it was a phenomenal set of programs. And I don't feel like there's actually a couple of people I keep in touch with from the program. And at first we didn't feel like we, we learned a ton from the program. I don't think we knew how to apply a bunch of that knowledge that they taught us there. But over time, I really learned that, wow, there was a lot of really good nuggets that these people left, like little seeds in my brains that like hatch over time. And so I was really blessed to actually go through that program and be able to experience that. But uh, at first, it really it was about seeking legitimacy for being a product manager. And I don't think that um, uh, I felt like I, there's a train. <laughs> uh, I didn't feel like it was about going to learn to be a product manager. Right. Yeah, you said a lot there. I mean, certainly as an instructor and coach of product, I can attest that one of the most challenging things about teaching it is equally the most challenging thing about learning it's Product management is just about learning how to think differently. And then the rest is finding ways to assimilate, you know, this framework, right. you know, or, or as I sometimes describe, setting up scaffolding in the middle of an empty field and knowing what scaffolding you need and for what purpose. Right. But uh, to go back to cars.com for a moment. So you're working as a CSR. And if I understand your story correctly, you basically started poking holes in the operational processes yeah. and you were escalating that to management. Were they receptive? They're like, oh, great. We love it when new folks come in and tell us how to make the business better. Yeah, I think um, yeah, everybody loves when a, a junior person in, in customer service starts to tell them how to do their job. But I said previously that my English degree was my saving grace. And I think I had no idea how to make a proposal. But I thought, you know what, I'm just going to write a story about how I can see this working a little bit better. And so my proposal was really a story of, um, you know, how I would like to do my job and actually how I saw myself being more efficient uh, when I did these things. And um, I remember my boss at the time really smiling when I when I gave it to him. And he thought, this is this is really cool. He's like, maybe we can find you a different position um, and one that's better suited to, to this kind of skill set. And I think that uh, I've leaned on that English literature degree pretty constantly over the years, even to the point where, like, uh, in this current job, I've even wrote fiction stories about how I want to see the business actually look and pass those out for people to read and actually understand. So there's, there's a little bit of an art that I didn't realize I had in being a product manager almost from day one. And so talk to us more about that moment of panic. So this is an interesting, I think this is an interesting inspect and adapt moment mm -hmm. as it relates to product management in a larger scale organization versus sort of a more startup environment. So you made this transition from CSR to sort of product manager in training or product management intern. And presumably at that scale, they had processes, they had an established way of doing things, the preferred frameworks of thinking were defined. And so you got to just kind of soak it all up. And then you went out on your own 
to use that same analogy, empty field. So that was the moment where you thought, how come I knew it so readily when all of the frameworks are there? And then someone took the frameworks away and I got to think from scratch again. Yeah. Um, so to give you context at the time at cars.com, it, it was a very waterfall environment. So to create a product, you had to write an 80 page product requirements document. And there were racy matrices and um, you, know, you did market analysis, market sizing and access to all this data. And I think it was interesting. I've used some of those muscles over time and I used some of those skills to put proposals together, but uh, it was an overly rigid process that kind of made you believe you knew what you were doing. And when I finally left to go do product management on my own, I uh, realized that few of those things actually help you in a real world scenario to convince an investor or convince a developer or convince a uh, customer service associate that this is the vision that you have and this is how you need to do it and here's how I'm going to break down all those risks in the field. I think my team here jokes around we have a Slack channel and uh, we had a new junior Pearson start last year and I asked the team like can you put together a list of like what are the top five things you need to know as a product manager and we only came up with one and it was like the title of the list was like learn the ropes and the the first thing that came out was it's not a rope it's actually a snake and you're effed <laughs> and that was the only thing that we were able to actually tell somebody and I, I think that's it being a product manager is actually a it is an exercise in synthesizing ambiguity and getting people to feel good that you have a vision and there's a story at the center of what you're doing telling that story to a developer who wants to build a product to telling the story to an executive who wants to invest in what you're doing and there is no single framework that gets you to understand all that. And uh, everybody, I, I have six product managers on my team and they all have a different style about how they go putting that story together, whether it's extremely data-driven or uh, it is um, it's told through prototypes and designs or it's told uh, just by getting up and, and doing a performance piece of art in front of a group of people. But telling that story is key because I think at the end of the day, we're all a little bit scared, right? And we all want to feel like I did back at cars.com where you're sure you're going on the right path and like your framework is giving you the right answers to go do things um, that you're actually going through and you're building the right product and nobody wants to be held accountable for building the wrong product at the end of the day. And product managers kind of live in the world. They, on one hand, uh, or maybe internally to themselves, always kind of feel that they're not building the right thing or are terrified at what they're doing or if they're making the wrong choice. but outwardly are always presenting this story that like we know where we're going and even when we make mistakes I can help tell you why we made those mistakes and make <laughs> sense of that world right. um, and so there is that that panic and I think maybe the real framework of being a product manager is uh, learning how to outwardly express like a, a clear path that you're heading down talk to us because you said something interesting there nobody wants to be accountable for sort of building the wrong product and Certainly in your career path, you've worked in some large organizations. You're here at Trunk Club. You were at Groupon before. We'll talk about that. These are organizations that started before you, and somebody conceived a product. Somebody went from here's a pain point to here's a solution to here's how to monetize that to here's how to sustain it and scale it. And so there is this kind of changing of the guards moment that happens when an organization finds product market fit, when its earliest product team has to sort of ascend 
to different roles or sometimes leave the company if it's no longer a good fit for them. And a new team is sort of ushered in to to shepherd the phase two vision or the, you know, crossing the chasm kind of mission, if you will. So how does that feel to inherit a product and then have that pressure of, I hope I don't screw it up? Um, that's a great question. I, so I actually think there isn't one of those moments. There's four or five of those moments in the growth of a company. Um, you know, there's getting to your first million dollars and there's a million dollars to maybe 50 or $100 million. There's getting to like $300 million and there's getting to a billion dollars. And each of those stages of growth, I think requires a different type of team and, and maybe a different type of leadership as well. And um, I really found I like working in the the fifty million dollars to maybe you know a billion dollars range uh, when a company has proven out its initial. Where I'm not trying to like throw a bunch of things against the wall and see what actually sticks. And I'm totally terrified that like every day I'm not going to have a job because I, I haven't really validated this product I'm working on. That type of terror keeps me. I have kids at home and uh, <laughs> I like a little bit of stability in my life. But I think there's something really fun about um, being at that maybe 50 to $150 million all the way up to a billion dollars because there are, are far different sets of problems that you have to solve and enjoy solving. So one of those is growing a team to actually handle product management in your organization. Like I love team building. I love working with my group. I love the diverse set of skill sets and storytelling that, that my team has. There's also product managing the organization. Like at a certain point, uh, you need to get good about describing to other very specific roles in the organization like operations or sales why it is that your team is building the things that they're doing or convince them that they need those products to actually grow and thrive and survive and i think those are really fun things to go and do they're definitely not for everybody like some people really love being in that zero to 50 million dollar stage where you're spitballing and you're constantly changing you're pivoting left and right i like to be at a spot where like i can operate out of some data and uh maybe deal with a a little bit of a larger development team that actually go build some really awesome things with some muscle. How many uh, developers on your on your team are sort of you know within the resources of where you are now? Just to give us an example of that scale. Yeah, my uh, development team right now is around uh, seventy, all roles combined. So I believe we have thirty five engineers, and then we have a mix of business intelligence people and data services, uh, data scientists designers and US UX researchers are also included in that, plus developer operations in those type of roles. And what about the, the product managers? I mean, I think this is also an interesting insight moment for folks listening in is, what does a, a product manager role look like in terms of radius responsibility? I mean, you're sort of in a director level position. What about the folks that are kind of steering the ship? Three, four, 10, how many folks on the team? We have uh, six product managers today, and we're actually, I think for the size of organization we are, it's fairly small. Okay. Uh, we've purposely attempted to try to, to keep it really condensed, um, just because we've seen, I think all of us here have seen companies where, you know, I came from cars.com and there was 80 product managers wow. and there's a, a certain network loss. Like it's really hard to communicate with your own team and product manager to product manager, it's hard to build that trust. So. One of the things that we've tried to do is keep teams relatively small. There's one product manager for usually a max of seven engineers, a couple of designers, and a couple of data scientists on each team. And um, maybe one of the frameworks that we've tried is 
we try organizing teams around specific types of themes, and we have two themes at Trunk Club, uh, but those teams are fully autonomous. And so they make their own decisions, they form their own roadmaps, and my role is not to play the gatekeeper to tell them what they can and they cannot do, I'm more of a sounding board for them. And so they put their roadmaps together, um, usually we sit down in a, in a small room like this and we try to figure out like, okay, let's, let's go through your argument. Tell me your story about why you want to create this stuff. Can you back it up with data? Do you have clear signs from user research or um, from things that you've actually seen, maybe listening to customer service phone calls that this is the right way for us to go? Uh, and if we can, great, let's go pitch this to the rest of the company and get people on our side. We'll do a little grassroots campaign and we'll talk to people one-on-one and, and sell them on why our idea is so awesome. Uh, before we ever get in front front of like an executive team and say like, here's what I'm doing and here's why I want investment for it. Those product managers, like I said, are grouped around two different types of themes. So we have uh, center box teams. Uh, it's a Nordstrom term. Uh, it's basically like a shared resource that we can use across the entire company. Uh, and we have uh, two of those center box teams today. We have one that's back office, which is focused on fraud and finance, product mastering. Uh, and then we have a sales tools team that's focused on relationship management. And so building tools for our salespeople to manage conversations and relationships. Uh, and then the other three of our teams are focused around moments in the customer life cycle. So we have a team that's focused on the first customer experience. We have a team that's focused on returning customers and getting people back into the fold, um, called our activation team. And then we have a team that's focused on bringing the right product to the right person. Uh, which is like you can think of uh, it's analogous basically to our catalog. I guess the thought for me that comes up is as a product manager, sort of, you know, early on in a career coming into an organization like the one that you're describing, because there's always, I suppose, this question, and that's part of what we explore here on the show is how much strategy am I really going to get to touch? How much road mapping am I actually doing versus being given the roadmap or maybe weighing in on a project timeline inside of that roadmap or participating in a prioritization exercise? So can you talk a little bit about how how people find their team? Is it a matter of initial assignment and then you know, saying, I want to be over here. On yes. the, I'd love to get over to the activation team, Justin, at some point, if you could help me. Yeah, that's that's exactly the way it works. So we usually start a person off shadowing uh, with another product manager for a time. And very early on here at Trunk Club, we actually had product managers switch their role every um, six to nine months. So we'd have uh, the same person was managing our operations team when we had it. Uh, moved over to our merchandising technology team, ended up on our uh, consumer technology team and kind of went around that way until we found where we were best suited. I think uh, after time, we started finding people gravitate to a specific type of storytelling that really worked for them. The product manager I have in our back office is the most ace project manager I've ever met in my life. And she... Um, she is great about creating a timetable and milestones and deliverables. And so she works on highly structured uh, type projects like uh, accounting systems, or um, she works on things like uh, product ma uh, product mastering, where we're actually creating the products in our system for our, our catalog. And it requires a very buttoned up, very risk intolerant type approach. And it's very deadline driven because we have to manage the rest of the organization to these timeframes. And so, 
she is wonderful at telling that story about what needs to happen and why it needs to happen and why it needs to happen on this particular date and getting people behind her motivated to like almost manage crisis every single day. It's very different from the product manager that manages our first experience, which is a, a very experiment-driven team. So they're trying out different hypotheses. Like, I think if we put this in front of customers, uh, they're going to respond in this way. And, you know, you roll the dice and, and maybe one out of ten times it actually works out the way you expect. And so they're managing ten different experiments at a time. Like, I'm going to try this out and I'm going to try this out. And then like, oh, nine of those things really didn't work. And so very different types of mentalities, I think, for people and where they feel most comfortable telling a particular type of story. And I think our goal is really just to create that track of work from the one things I really found didn't work at cars.com was that it was a project-based environment. So you would write your product requirements document and actually bid for some developer time. And you actually went up in front of a council of people and you put your bid in place. You know, you would try to pork barrel everything into your project. You'd promise it would do the world. Like it's going to clean your dishes and it's going to bring in all the customers and it's going to retain them forever. And, you know, you, you, you try to bake everything because that project is your livelihood. If you don't get it right, you don't have a job. But the problem is that like you get on that project and you find, like I said, that nine times out of 10, you're going to fail at it or the premise is going to change. But you, as you're on a project, you got sponsored to do this one particular thing. You can't change the premise of your project. You can't adapt with it. And so you're stuck with it. And so you're stuck defending this thing that may not be the most successful thing for the customer at the end of the day. And so when we started um, our system here at Truck Club, our goal was to create these tracks where uh, product managers didn't necessarily need to justify each individual thing that they were doing. They just had to maintain a backlog of work and uh, tell a story that was cogent and give people an opportunity. They were, you know, had to be transparent, give people an opportunity to actually disagree with that story they were telling or say that story should go down a different path. And so our job, I think, as managers here is really just to find the, uh, the right track where a person feels comfortable telling that best story based on their own skill set and uh, based on the type of work that they're doing. Well, you said a lot there, and I want to unpack it uh, again. So many good nuggets here. Thank that, you. That you, you inherited the nugget approach from Northwestern, and now you bring nuggets everywhere you go as well. The first is you've painted a beautiful picture of the challenges of a waterfall or waterfall environment or project-based thinking, which is precisely that. Right. You know, product is continuous, product is necessarily adaptive. And when you remove that mindset, you remove a, a lot of the opportunity to just learn and improve. And, and then you get people forcing situations like you kind of describe. But I want to go back to talk a little bit about, you know, kind of stakeholder management and, and leadership, because one of the things that I heard from what you were saying there, which is something that I try to talk a lot about when mentoring kind of job seekers is, who are you, right? Because this product manager role looks very different. That's if there's one theme of the 100 PM podcast, it's that, right? Is right. it depends. And so getting connected with who you are, what drives you, what environments you work best in, what industries excite you, are you structured, are you highly experimental? That's a really critical part of deciding which is the right environment uh, to try to go after. And I love hearing that um, from a management perspective, you're also encouraging that kind of let's find let's find your tribe, let's find your right place in this organization. Totally. And I'm reminded in hearing that 
that a lot of people don't have that luxury. So I think it's a great testament to who you are as part of the leadership team. I'm curious what advice you could offer people who don't have as nurturing an environment where they kind of come in, they know they love product, they're also aware that this role they've been hired into isn't the right one and they don't have a supportive leader to say, hey, maybe you would do well over here on our, uh, our, on our fraud team, let's go and try that. Quit, what do you do? <laughs> um, my strategy, I've often found myself in that position and my strategy uh, is probably not a sustainable one. I've always worked two jobs and so I always work the job that I have and the job that I want um, and I'm even kind of doing that a little bit right now too. I, um, I moonlight as a developer, right? So I'm trying to build my code practice as best that I can. And I think um, I always did that. So I would work my day job of being a product manager and putting together proposals and managing products. And then kind of after I had dinner or uh, in my case now, I put the kids to bed, um, I'd go into my office or my quiet space, my safe space, and work through um, all the things I would want to see happen. And sometimes uh, that was dreaming up a new company, thinking about something totally different that I wanted to do. And sometimes it was just a proposal for work to do something different, to add value. And I think that strategy has served me well in a number of different companies because it's not, I think the first thing that people want to lean on is breaking down. It's coming into the office and say and saying this isn't working. This is this is terrible. Like I this inhibits me from doing my job, and um, kind of like the customer service rep telling his boss, you know, there's a better way to do things. Uh, it gets to be really irritating. You hear that often enough in your job that you start to block that out a little bit. But if you come, if you you know, you come to your boss with a proposal, or maybe your boss's boss, or another department, and you say like hey, here's a way I think we can do things better. And I've laid out the full proposal. Like I've, I've decreased the amount of ambiguity to knowing this is the right choice. Uh, and I've told a really clear story about why this is awesome. I found that that strategy works. And maybe it doesn't work overnight. Maybe it doesn't work within a few weeks, but it works over time to actually find yourself in a good position. And uh, if you've truly found yourself in a hostile environment where your voice isn't heard, there are a lot of good companies out there that, that want product managers, that want storytellers, that want somebody to actually go and, uh, and help them how to do things correctly. Right. Yeah, I, I think you're right. There are a lot of companies that want product managers and I'm deeply connected to the job seeker community and there's a lot of folks saying, I can't get a job. So there's clearly a friction or a tension that, that's happening there. And what do you think that tension is about? That the, the companies that are looking for great people maybe can't find them at the rate they need them. Meanwhile, the folks that are looking can't seem to get in the door. I think part of it is um, because product management is such an undefined profession, I think a lot of companies don't know what they're looking for in a product manager don't understand what product management is. And then sometimes when they hire product managers, don't want the output of what a, uh, or don't want the outcome of what a product manager is going to give them. Uh, and it's a little bit of a learning curve for an organization to really understand that. Um, I've worked for both bosses that understood product management and bosses that have not. And it's a, it's a pretty night and day difference uh, to know how to manage that, even manage the motions of product managers, which I think are a, a fairly unique set across people that I've managed in my life. Are we sensitive? I think we are maybe not sensitive, but things like prone to depression. Okay. Um, I think it's it's important to, this is something we talk about often in our team, 
I'll tell a really quick story. So we uh, decided to replace Salesforce here, the CRM at our company, and decided to build it ourselves. And it was a super scary moment for us. And um, the product manager that worked on this job is, is one of the best I've ever met in my life. He's a phenomenal guy. And he built this thing and it was, it was an astounding success. We actually built it in three and a half months and we rolled it out to the company. It was one of the quickest projects I think we've ever done. And everybody loved it. And there was like parades down the street, right? And I would be celebrating if I could get rid of Salesforce myself. So <laughs> I'm with you on that. Uh, we were so happy. And um, my boss had asked me at the time, and he had worked with product managers all his life, asked me, so how's he doing? And I said, you know what? He's, he's actually kind of bummed right now. And my boss said to me, and I'll never forget this. He's like, that makes a lot of sense. And I said, why? He said, well, because product managers hold in their heart every single trade-off they've ever made across a product. And at the end of that project, you think to yourself, man, I could have done this so many different ways. Like, did I make the right choices? And I think that's totally true. And I think as product managers, we face that all the time. Like we live in this ambiguity and we can never show that ambiguity to other people, but internally we face it. And um, I think part of my job as managing product managers is to give safe space to them. So they can talk about all those difficult things, difficult decisions, and some celebrate the successes. Sometimes people don't celebrate the success of a product manager because the product manager is like a mortar between bricks, like holds those big bricks together, holds operations and sales and engineering together, but never really gets noticed. And so the other product managers are, are great about celebrating. Like you had a great demo that was phenomenal. <laughs> like you made a metaphor that you were able to hold on to that whole entire demo. Like, you know how hard that is? I saw your boss starting to fall asleep in the middle of that demo and you did a great job of actually waking him back up and getting him noticed like of the things that you're actually building. And then sometimes it's about commiserating, like going to get a drink and saying like, yeah, that's really tough. Yeah. Those trade-offs were difficult. Those mistakes, that failure was really tough to hear. Um, but you know, we got your back. Yeah, now that that's super cool, and I'm glad you bring up the point about there's not a lot of glory in the role. I think one of the other nice things about the show is this opportunity to kind of shine a light on all of these amazing people that are doing incredible things. I mean, it is a strategic role. There is a lot of aligning different viewpoints, but it's always the founder that gets invited to talk about the success as though, you know, they alone right. created this this 50 million, 100 million, 10 billion dollar thing when in fact there were a lot of people both, you know, the specialists within the domains and then the the mortar as you described that that made it happen through trade-offs kind of like you're no, you're absolutely. talking about. It's beautiful. So you were at Groupon before. Groupon is like 15,000 people, something like that. Yeah, something close to that. Trunk Club's what, like one-tenth of that? Yeah, I think we're around 1,100, 1,200 people right now. Talk to us about that transition to go from the enterprise to, I mean, 1,500 is also still a very large organization, but it's not 15,000 large. Yeah, Groupon is actually, um, you can consider them an enterprise, but they're a fairly unique company. And so one of the ways... I liken that they're managed is actually like a venture capital firm within a company. And so there are 52 development teams inside Groupon and each of them is making a bid about what they want to do and senior management is investing in those 52 teams across the board. It's actually Groupon's environment is incredibly crazy and fast paced. I think part of that as well was not only that the enormous, the growth cycle, I mean, they went from 
um, zero to a six or seven billion dollar company in five years. It was almost like the Incredible Hulk, like they grew too big for their shirt instantaneously and everything was like torn to shreds across the board. And, and like that includes their company culture. It was really, really hard to hold on to. And they brought in a lot of leadership from Amazon. And I think it was leadership from Amazon that were incredibly ingr- aggressive and wanted to maintain particular financial goals to shareholders. And so the environment, if I could describe it in any way, was uh, just particularly frantic at all times. I managed teams around the world in Chile and Berlin and in California, and I found myself up uh, basically all hours of the day managing something. Uh, my particular team uh, was the storefront team. I actually had two, so I had storefront and funnel optimization. And the storefront team is, is kind of how it sounds. We managed the deal page, the core page on Groupon, all the way through you checking out your particular deal. So every single channel manager, every single um, operation at Groupon actually had to run through that particular page. Uh, and then I managed uh, funnel optimization, which was this cross uh, data science analytics team whose job was to go across every single function at Groupon and improve it in some way. And it was insane. It was absolutely insane. <laughs> and I'm not gonna lie, I actually I had, a, I had a nervous breakdown on the job. Uh, because it was so crazy. Um, I think one of the things we learned very, very early on was we started looking at ways that we can improve the site and realized that it was taking between six and seven seconds to load a page. And in an e-commerce world, that's a total death knell. Like uh, we could take a look at revenue generation by millisecond on the site and we were just losing gobs of money. And so I could do all these things to improve the experience at Groupon. Uh, but at the end of the day, if the site wasn't actually performant, none of those things mattered. And so we sponsored this project to actually go through and rebuild the site in Node because it was far more performant and allowed us to actually do a bunch of things that we wanted. And going through this project, realized that um, you know over the five years of this massive growth, nobody owned whole sections of the site. And because I was sponsoring this project, I ended up taking implicit ownership for a bunch of those different things. And so we ended up owning things like the login form which doesn't sound like a big deal until you realize the millions of people that are logging in every day and how each percentage of login success matters to a company like that. And it became absolutely overwhelming. You know, I stopped eating and I stopped sleeping to the point where like, I think my brain just kind of broke down for a period of time. And it was uh, super telling. I actually learned a lot in that process. I learned how to manage this enormous scale organization. I learned how to build real-time analytics to understand how things are performing. I actually learned a lot about engineering itself. One of the things we were required to do is every day I came in and I turned on these two gigantic TV monitors that sat in front of my desk, above my desk, and on there was everything from real-time performance to the site all the way through um, what was going on in the servers, like how many cache hits and misses or CPU utilization. And so if anything dipped on the site, I had to immediately find the root cause. Is it uh, some type of hardware performance? Is it um, is it something to do with one of the services that we rely on? Is it a deal that's running on the site? Because within five minutes, I get a phone call from the CEO saying, what's going on? Can you explain what's happening? So I built a, a really good muscle for me to, to read real-time analytics and uh, keep monitoring our products, um, but it, it definitely took its toll. I think my wife had told me at the time that she thought I had kind of actually died because wow. uh, she hadn't seen me for months on end. And it was really tough. I think, you know, I had gone back to my uh, my bosses at the time and asked them, hey, could I do a different job? Actually, and I, I to use my old tactic, I actually invented a new job for myself and proposed it to them. 
And the response was, uh, no, you're actually really good at the job that you do. And I said, that's <laughs> Being punished for, uh, <laughs> right. for succeeding. And they're like, you know, I've never seen anybody that can negotiate with all the channels of the business and keep things going. I said, yeah, that's great, but I'm also dying right, right. now. Uh, and I think it forced me to really consider uh, the next job that I was going to take. And that's when I found Trunk Club. Um, I had a friend who invited me over here and I came over at about seven in the evening, which is uh, Trunk Club really starts to pick up about that time. Okay. Uh, customers come in, they get a drink, they sit down, somebody shows them awesome clothing they can buy. And um, I went from the sales floor down to the engineering floor and was amazed. There was engineers down working on awesome projects and they were all excited and they were happy and they were working on things they wanted. And I got to know the, the team over time and really decided for me, like if I'm going to be a product manager anywhere else, if I'm gonna deal with the stress day in and day out, I wanna work around people who I think are upstanding, right? Who are gonna support me in my, in my darkest hour, uh, who are gonna support me through the crazy ideas and the difficult times, who people I wanna share a drink with and laugh about the thing that we're making it and commiserate over the things that failed. And so that's what I really found at Trunk Club and what really woke me up at Groupon is that that was the prime thing I really need to find for a product management position. First of all, thank you so much for your candor and in sharing that because it is a less explored but really real kind of part of it, which is, you know, especially, I guess you all don't consider Chicago to be East Coast. I'm from Toronto, so I always just think you're practically Toronto, it's East Coast. We're and the third we're, coast, right? we're in that like nine to five, go, go, go. You know, California operates very differently. Right. And so East Coast, there is a celebrated aspect to go, go, go that is not as readily embraced I think on the West Coast and, totally. and that manic environment that you're talking about, I know a lot of it has to do with, with the scale and, and with the rapid growth as you described, and it's a specific culture also. Right. And so being connected with your own self enough to say, you know, you know what, there are other things that are important to me than just being great at the job. And that's like, you know, emotional well-being and family relations and, you know, balance in my life. And I love that you say you found Trunk Club, maybe Trunk Club found you. I don't know. There's definitely right. kind of a, an arrival moment. Let's uh, talk about Trunk Club for a moment because there might be folks listening who don't know what it is. So give us the, uh, the pitch here. Yeah. So uh, Trunk Club is about uh, helping you make sense of style. Um, I think uh, one of the things that we say, for us anyway, we're, we're a Nordstrom company. We sell all Nordstrom clothes. Uh, people come in at all different stages of life. And we have two different experiences. So you can come in um, to our physical location or you can deal with us online only. And either way, we assign you a personal stylist who's going to stay with you throughout your entire lifetime at Trunk Club. And uh, the personal stylist job is to help you feel good about whatever event you have coming up in your life. So. Uh, if you're me and you're going to talk at a conference uh, a little bit later in the day, or if you um, are going on your first date, or you're going for a job interview, or you're you're my wife and you're going to actually pitch your new line in New York, and you're seven months pregnant, and you want to find the perfect outfit that's going to make you feel great, that's our stylist job, is to fit you in that and to help you tell your own story and help you feel good about the thing that you're going to do. Like I mentioned, there's there's two different ways that uh, you can work with Trunk Club. So you can come into our, one of our retail locations, and we're in New York, Boston, Chicago, L.A., Dallas, uh, Charleston. And you come in, you get a drink, you sit down in a private fitting room, somebody's going to bring you out clothing. Um, I actually work a lot more in our trunk side of the business. So you sign up online, 
uh, we get to know about you through uh, forms, through actually conversing online through our real-time messaging platform. And our stylist is going to be there to ask you questions and figure out what you want. And then it's actually going to show you uh, a box of clothing. And it's going to say like, hey, does this actually match what you're looking for for this particular event or where you're at right now? And you're going to say yes or no. You, you totally missed the mark or this is awesome. And we've seen all those responses across the board. Uh, you'll get it shipped out to your home and then um, try the stuff on and whatever you like, you keep and you send the rest back. Yeah, I actually, uh, in preparation for our hanging out, I wanted to be as versed as I could in the product. So I took myself through the entire onboarding process and I was really cool. quite impressed with the intake form because, you know, a lot of that is you're asking for sensitive information, you're trying to capture picture of somebody and you have to i would imagine at every moment keep them from bouncing and going oh this is too arduous oh, i don't want to share all of this information and i made a mental note and said okay they did this very well but i do have one piece of feedback do you yeah, want please. to take it let's go so when i got to the page so none of the layouts i i chose woman as my gender although i'm not sure that's always the appropriate uh, path for me but i chose woman and then i went through all the styles none of them were my style which is fine you offer a complete workflow to support that but then when i had to put in my budgets per item i felt that there should be some not applicables like mm -hmm. uh, for example a handbag i'm never going to have a handbag so then I had to provide a value set, which is actually a false set of information. And I imagine there may be circumstances like in that there's an opportunity to say, oh, oh, you don't use handbags. That's an interesting framing of who your personality may be. Oh, Could be useful. Yeah. But, you know, given that you have such a, um, a manual kind of person to person component of the business, maybe they cover all of that over scotch in the, in the beautiful fitting, <laughs> in which case doesn't add any value at all. No, that's actually, that's great feedback. I think one of the fascinating things about building those forms, it's something I never would have expected. Um, I think you have to understand this in the greater context of what's happening in the industry right now. Last year, Amazon scooped up somewhere around like 60% of retail growth, right? All these big retail stalwarts like Macy's are worth a third of what they were a few years ago, and they're shutting down locations left and right. And I think, you know, when you're faced with Amazon, who's infinitely convenient and right, has almost every product in the world, what value do you offer? And we've always been very judicious about what we put in front of customers, because we want to always keep the experience about the conversation that you have between you and your stylist. But what's interesting is that every question we ask, sometimes even if we don't get the question right, actually increases the possibility that we're going to convert that customer at the end of the day, hmm. which is totally opposite. Like usually in any other business I've worked at, you drop questions and, or sorry, you add questions and people drop off in the funnel. And uh, I think what's interesting is it's the opposite here. And I think it has to do with this like placebo of personalization. Like people come in and they expect the more questions they answer, even sometimes if they're not perfect, like totally understand like our styles questions are not fully, they don't fully cover every part of the spectrum that we want them to today. But even just asking the question, people feel like you've listened to them a little bit more and you're, they're more likely to actually go purchase something at the end of the day, which is, which is totally interesting. And so for the, the folks on the trunk club side, as you described, is this really meant to service everybody else who doesn't happen to be in one of the few urban centers where you do have this physical location or it's a compliment to hey if you're here in chicago come have that scotch let's do the fitting and then let us recede into the background as a convenient service 
Yeah, I think one of the things, so convenience is a, is a really broad word. For some people, it means I want something within five minutes. For some people, it means I want you to anticipate what my needs actually are. It's both a compliment and it's a, it's a different experience depending on what you want out of it. For some people, trying things on at 9 p.m. in their house, like a, a single mom, right? That might be her only chance to actually go shopping throughout the day. And so that's really convenient for her. For other people, filling out a form and talking online may not be the most convenient thing in the world. Like, so coming in house to our location actually may be super convenient because you could talk to somebody face to face and have them actually assess your, your body like right there and understand what's going to fit you and what's not, or what's your style, what's not. And so um, we try to offer multiple modes in which people can work with us. And we see sometimes that the same customer may, may want to actually go get a trunk that comes in house every so often and may be looking for very different things at different times in their life. I love the concept. I love, uh, as I say, to go back, the user interface is super clean and, you. you know, I'll be tracking because it's an interesting space to be playing in. We're definitely the outsource economy. And I mean, right. I, I, I had my own kind of probably trunk club, you know, pinch point when, you know, the, the seasons change, then I go to pull out all of my t-shirts and then I realize that the t-shirts that have served me well the past few summers don't work. And I'm a great example. When I say convenience, I think, okay, I just want someone to go to James purse mm -hmm. and get me like three shirts <laughs> all in the same size and cut just three different colors. You know, where is that person? Sounds like that person might be part of trunk club. They oh, won't totally. go to James purse, but you carry right. James purse at Nordstrom's locations. Actually, my convenience is, and don't tell anybody this. Uh, <laughs> You're telling everybody. Yeah. Keep, <laughs> keep going. I, I hate dressing myself in the morning. And if I could wear the same uniform every single day, I probably would. So we have our custom clothing division here, and it's great because I actually just had the same shirt manufactured like 15 times, right. and I just can wear that every single morning. You're taking a page from the Zuckerberg playbook, <laughs> right, just exactly. like same outfit, then I can have all this extra bandwidth to think about making the product better. Yeah, give me my custom gray hoodie. <laughs> Let's talk about, uh, we do a segment here called Get the Job, Learn the Job, Love the Job. So I'm a first-time PM or a novice PM, I'm looking to get hired. I heard you and I think I want to work with this Justin guy. He sounds, you know, loving and caring and the kind of leader I want to be a part of his team. How do I get hired? What can you tell me? Yeah. So we've hired people from all walks of life. I think we talked about me maybe having a little more traditional, if you can call it that, product management background um, or maybe more formal. But I think everybody that's on my team comes from some disparate place, analysts, consultants, uh, customer service designers uh, I think first and foremost and this is super easy to forget but like you have to be really passionate about the job that you want uh, I can't believe how many people that we have apply and just show no interest in the position itself like they come in the door and they're like yeah this seems kind of cool <laughs> or why don't you sell me on it maybe I want the job yeah. I don't know and uh, it's a, it's such a night and day difference when you walk into the job. I had one of my project managers, sorry, one of my product managers come in and bring together a proposal of like, here's how I would improve Trunk Club, just like you did on this call. So maybe if you want to come work here at Trunk Club. <laughs> what do you think I was doing? I was seeding that for our <laughs> offline conversation. Go on. And so like I, I went through the service and I actually think there's a couple of ways it could be improved. And I built this customer journey map and like, I was so floored that this person did it and had the whole presentation put together, I actually did user interviews with some of her friends that use the service. And that's, that's super impressive at the end of the day. And I think part of that also demonstrated the other thing that I'm looking for 
and I've said a couple times, which is uh, I want somebody who's going to be a good storyteller and tell that story however you want. If you want to tell that being uh, super data driven or super prototype driven, like that was the really selling, the really big selling point for me is like, hey, can you actually go through and tell a story about your own career and things that you've done and things that have actually led you to this point? It's a it's a huge selling point for me actually coming out as a product manager here. What about the hard stuff? You know, you you shared from your own uh, career those challenging moments, those vulnerable moments. What can you say about the hard part of being a PM? Yeah, uh, hard part of being a PM. So I think there's a couple of things. One kind of table stakes is: Are you perseverant? Can you, can you get up and come into the office every day and do this job? Can you be a different person every day to a different person that actually needs you to be that? Um, can you be a leader of engineers, right? Can you can you go on a sales call and help somebody out? Can you answer a customer service phone call? And uh, it takes a lot of perseverance to be able to do that. And I think hand in hand with that is humility. Uh, you're going to have to learn tons of new things every day. And I find the people who are the least successful in the position are the people who say, that's not me, or or say things like, that's too technical, or I don't think I can understand that, right? I think a, a person who makes who does a great job as a product manager, this person comes in with the attitude of like, yes, I can learn that. Like, yeah, I could fake it until I actually am able to make this thing. I can get into the mix. And you want me to understand a programming language? Great. Like, I will sit down with you and, and actually work through it until I fully understand it. You want me to understand how to put a, a financial plan together? Great. We'll work through it until I understand it. And I think it's really hard for some people to admit, especially as an adult, that they don't understand something and they need the help. And um, they may be the stupidest person in the room, right? Or they may be sitting with the smartest person in the, wor in the world in a room to learn something. And it's really hard because uh, that's a really vulnerable moment to have. Yeah. Now, this, this definitely comes up a lot is resist the temptation to be the specialist, right? There's always going to be folks that are smarter than you, so you have to be comfortable with that. And equally, you got to find a way to connect with these people, and you can't connect by taking the, the standpoint of, I'm not going to learn your language. Totally. And so. as a matter of fact, we uh, we joke around that we're the chief janitors here at the company. So. <laughs> I show up. You're the mortar, you're the janitor, you're making this role sound, anyone listening is going, forget about advice on getting the job, I don't want this job. Too I much cleanup. I think it's fun though. Every morning I come into the office and I put away the dishes, right? It's the first thing I do every day that I come in and I think that's what it takes to build a successful product, right? You have to be the person willing to write the stories, to, to actually do the testing if it needs to be done, to find the bugs, to, to listen to the feedback about your product, even when sometimes it's hard to hear. It's difficult to be that person, but that's what it really takes to be an awesome product manager. And what is your favorite thing about being a product manager? I think despite all those things, being the, the janitor and the mortar, um, it's almost like an addiction. Um, I think being a product manager, right, you have full control of your own destiny. You you come in every day, you get to decide what you're going to do. You take full responsibility for the mistakes and, and you get to celebrate sometimes even if it's internally about this awesome success you were able to do. Like even though working at Groupon uh, was one of the toughest things I ever did, I made $56 million in a year for that company, right? And I will remember that in my heart and I'll remember all those successes I had and all those things I learned and all the friends I made along the way for the rest of my life, right? That's a really hard thing to turn down. I talked uh, I talked to my product managers every week about this and uh, we check in often like is this still the right job for you are you still like are you still in it do you want to move over to a more specialized position and I think universally I find the people uh, who I work with 
say the same thing, like, I can't give this up. I may have had a sleepless night last night. I may have had a really tough meeting with our boss, but um, I can't give it up for the life of me. Do you have, uh, Justin, any recommended resources that you would like us to add to our, our site, books, blogs, podcasts, just great information that you think folks could benefit from coming across? have a tough time with that I find um, I actually when I read just try to read things totally out of the industry um, like on the train in in the morning I try to read science journals okay because uh, sometimes I need a break from what's going on in the world and uh, in product management and um, I find often what I'm seeking in my job is a good metaphor a good analogy um, something else I can try and sometimes just reading stuff that's incredibly disparate from what I'm doing right now but is also about making. You know, sometimes my wife is a wood maker. Or she's a uh, she's a professional wood turner, right? And like I just like to be in the shop with her. She makes things. Uh, it often gets me to think about building products in a totally new and unexpected way that I would have never thought of before. That English degree, who knew all these years later it would just be paying for itself <laughs> in dividends. All right. Um, normally I like to wrap up by asking folks about like a personal or professional mantra, but as you've been talking, I've been kind of thinking I have one for you. Okay. Bring Bear with me. I know I'm just projecting a lot onto you, but I want to propose know thyself also because it really maps back to the classic literature piece and i think what you've exemplified in this conversation and in your career is the importance of who am i what drives me who do i want to be in the world and and how do i reflect that and i think it's uh, certainly what i think that, that you have demonstrated so i love it. see how it sticks i don't know <laughs> i love it okay justin hughes thank you so much for being a part of the project so great to meet you it's great to meet you too. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please help us get discovered by leaving a five-star rating and review right from your podcast app. Our mission is to help you excel at product management. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great free resources to help you on your path, including all of the recommendations from our fabulous guests week over week. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. We'll be back next week with an all new episode.